from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week, Vomina's Mira Nabulsi speaks with Tunisian journalist and researcher Asma Ghribi about the recent developments on women's rights in Tunisia, including the government's decision to lift a decades-long ban on Muslim women marrying non-Muslims. But first, we remember Moroccan revolutionary thinker and leader, Mehdi Bambarka, who, while in political exile in Paris, was abducted on October 29, 1965, never to be seen again. Stay with us. On the afternoon of October 29, 1965, Self-exiled revolutionary Moroccan politician Mehdi Ben Barka was stopped outside the Brasserie Lip on Paris's Boulevard Saint-Germain by two French police agents. Ben Barka, who was 45 at the time, climbed into the back of an unmarked Peugeot 403 and was never seen again. Historical archives have shown that Mester Ben Barka was the victim of a conspiracy among Moroccan French, U.S., and Israeli intelligence services who all colluded to eliminate a man who had become a thorn in the side of imperialism and neocolonialism. Khalil spoke with Ben Barka's son, Bashir, about his father's life and activism and the circumstances around his tragic disappearance, which remain unsolved despite heroic efforts by Ben Barka's family to uncover a truth is stubbornly covered up by successive Moroccan, French, and U.S. governments. Khalil started the interview by asking Mahdi Ben Barka's son, Bashir, who lives in Paris, to give him a brief summary of Mahdi Ben Barka's early activism. Il suffit de, de dire qu'il est né en 1920 et qu'il a disparu en 1965. Donc il a vécu, il répond pendant 45 ans de sa vie, Mehdi Banbarka was born in 1920 and died in 1965. During 45 years of his life, he saw the first half of the 20th century and was able to witness the heroic struggles of the Third World. Very young, he became involved in the political movement for independence in his country, Morocco, and quickly became one of the leaders of a movement called Estiklal, the word for independence in Arabic, and was in 1944 was one of the signatories of the Manifesto of Independence the first time that Morocco officially called for its independence and for the end of the French protectorate, a signature which earned him two years in prison right off the bat. Uh, yeah, but first I, I was interested in you going back to Mehdi Bambarka's childhood, if you will. My my own father, who was uh, his contemporary and was to become his friend in the 40s, met him in Algiers, and often he tells me how extremely brilliant, both in his studies and otherwise, Mehdi Bambarka was, something that apparently struck, always struck everyone around Mehdi Bambarka. Yes, he was, and I would say that he started school by accident, almost by infraction, because in the 20s, school in Morocco wasn't open to all children, and my father was from a modest family. His father was a small grocery store owner, and his mother was a seamstress who worked from home. And in his family, only the elder son was allowed to go to school. 
My grandfather would take his elder son, my uncle, to school, and my father would tag along. And then he would sit at the school doorstep all day, waiting, forlorn, and finally one day, the schoolmaster took pity on him and took him in. My father quickly demonstrated his natural ability and intelligence and was able to skip several grades and had very brilliant studies. This was all in French, I assume. In Arabic and French, a completely bilingual education, and as a child he had previously gone to Oranic school, as all Moroccan boys did back then. So he was completely steeped into his Moroccan culture. But at the same time, his mind was wide open and had complete access to French and Western culture. So at the end of his schooling, he earned his baccalaureate with special mention of excellent, which was extremely rare and made him stand out right from the start and provoked interest on both sides of the political divide. The French protectorate authorities on the one hand and of course the nationalist Moroccan movement as well. There was a competition of sorts between the two movements to see which side was going to enjoy having him on their side. But the question was moot because from the very start, given the milieu he grew up in, given his deep involvement in Moroccan society, since he came from it and worked inside of it and was during his studies employed part-time in the working-class neighborhoods of Rabat, Morocco. He had by that time developed a deep awareness of the dire situation of the indigenous Moroccans in their own country that was due to the injustice of the French protectorate. Very naturally, he sided with the nationalists and went to Algiers to pursue his higher education because of the war in 1939. He was initially supposed to go study in Paris to attend a famous engineering school. But because of the World War II situation in France, he ended up going to Algiers instead. This provided him with a great opportunity to extend his awareness to the rest of Maghreb, or Northwest Africa. He lived in Algiers during a period very rich in political debate, rich in events. This was the height of World War II, and the great debate in North Africa was whether, as a North African national suffering from French occupation, one was to ally himself with the forces of the Axis or with the Allies. That was one of the debates. So even in Algiers, he became one of the pioneers of the North African student movement there, which later expanded to France as well. All this gave him an opportunity to meet with both Algerians and the French who were living in Algeria at the time. So he sort of made his political debut there. So then he came back to Morocco. When he came back to Morocco in 1942, he was one of the first native individuals ever to teach mathematics in a Moroccan public school. And at the same time, he began teaching at the Imperial College, created and assembled around the future prince and future king of Morocco, Hassan II, with other children of aristocrats around him. And in 1942, at the time of nationalist upsurge, he was arrested and imprisoned for two years from ages 22 to 24. The French felt he was a, a serious threat to their regime. Absolutely. We have since retrieved historical archives which showed that the French authorities had been pressuring the school principal to fire him because he was disseminating nationalist propaganda to the students. 
But in order to keep him longer, the principal kept using the pretext that Ben Barka was the only Muslim teacher in the school. When he came out of prison in 1946, he completely dove into political action within the framework of the Estaglal, or Independence Party, which was founded in 1944, of which he was one of the founders, and he devoted himself entirely to organizing the Young Party and to running the party's publication, of which he was the first editor and which was printed in both French and Arabic. Above all, he did a great job of laying out democratic foundations for all of Morocco. He was constantly crisscrossing Morocco, which enabled him to connect with many Moroccans in the working class. And we have many witness accounts relating how he kept tirelessly reaching to very humble people, informing them about the revolution in a pointedly clear and accessible manner. This was completely different than what other political figures who were more detached from the masses and used more traditional discourse were doing. He was bringing a comprehensible type of political discourse to the grassroots and was able to forge deep bonds with the people that were durable. But soon the French protectorate finally decided to deport all of the nationalist leaders, he among them. But he was one of the only ones who was deported in special isolation. All the other leaders had been deported as a group, and they found themselves in detention together, in detention centers far from the urban centers. Ben Barka was the only one to have been deported even farther away and alone. Where was he deported? In the southern desert of Morocco. But each time he reached somewhere, the surrounding populations would become aware of that and would rally to go see him. So the French had to keep deporting him a little further away every time, deeper and deeper into the desert, to the point that he ended up very far away from any populated center, deep in the Sahara Desert. I'm told that to go visit him in prison, it took two days of traveling. My mother was the only person allowed to go see him, and only once every three months. That's how much the French authorities feared him. But even that didn't keep the people from going to visit him. They called him our prisoner. Not only did they see him and protect him, but they also helped break the total isolation in which he was plunged. This period allowed him to do a lot of reading and deepen his knowledge of political economics in particular. And it gave him the opportunity to write certain reports, which he managed to transmit back to his comrades in the nationalist movement outside of captivity, thanks to those who came to visit him. One of these reports, which made it all the way to the United Nations Assembly and was read there, described the dire situation of Moroccans in Morocco under the protectorate regime. And this deportation lasted until the end of 1955, at which time the French authorities, which had too much on their hands in Algeria with the Algerian rebellion, started to moderate its stance towards the Moroccan liberation movement and started negotiating the return of Moroccan King Mohammed V, who had been deported and exiled in 1953. And independence finally occurred in March 1956, and Ben Barka was one of the principal negotiators at Aix-les-Bains in France between the Moroccan nationalists and the French protectorate. The king was deported in 1953 and was finally freed in November of 55, and the independence was declared in March 1956. Ben Barka was the one who organized the return of the king from Madagascar, where he had been exiled by the French for supporting the independence cause, and there were tens of thousands in the streets of Rabat to welcome back the king. Ben Barka was in charge of organizing all that, 
And ironically, as he was preparing his historic return and welcome, little did he know that at the same time, the French, for their part, were also very busy preparing the post-independence neo-colonialist regime in Morocco. The very day of Mohammed V's return, in the very same automobile in which the king was coming back, they had already planted the now infamous captain Oufqir, a Moroccan military man who had served in the French army and was ostensibly a nationalist, but who was actually still working for his old French masters. So the French never really lost a beat. So at independence, your father, Mehdi Bumbarka, is elected to the National Assembly in charge of writing the future constitution of the Moroccan state. Yes, there was this structure called the National Constitution Assembly, which was supposed to help write the constitution of the independent Moroccan state. And he was elected to work on this. And though this assembly was supposed to have only an advisory role, Ben Barka still managed to have a central role in actually writing this document, which was meant as the core of modern Morocco's future democratic institutions, turning independent Morocco in a new modern direction. But unfortunately, that never actually happened. Ben Barka remained in that important institution for three years, working and interacting with elected members of parliament, working on state budgets and so on. But eventually, when all was said and done, in 1962, a completely undemocratic version of the Constitution was handed down and imposed from above by the new king, negating all the work that had been done, instead of the democratic one that had been worked on by the elected assembly. I remember I was in Rabat, a little kid there at the time, and even as a child I remember the old king who was really loved by the Moroccan people. I remember he suddenly died, and that was such a tragedy for, for everybody. Everybody was crying in the streets. As a progressive nationalist leader, what was Bambarka's relation with the monarchy, with the, with the old king first? Mm-hmm. Well, with the old king Mohammed V, there was mutual respect. You could say that Bimbarka enjoyed Mohammed V's confidence. Within the monarchic system, his relations with the different factions were more complex. After independence, the picture was not a simple one. There was the nationalist movement, of which my father was a member. Then there was the so-called movement of national unity which was not truly independent from the monarchy. And then there was also the colonial forces, which refused to leave the scene entirely and were still angling for advantage. So the relations within the government were rather complex. They were complex. I remember the Moroccans were in deep sympathy with the Algerians uh, in their struggle for independence. But at the same time, they were not free of their movements because of the lingering French presence in Morocco. Absolutely. There was a real solidarity with the Algerian struggle at the popular level. But at the level of the monarchy, there was a real reluctance to openly manifest and provide any kind of support to the Algerian independence movement, lest the French be annoyed. 
So to see the National Liberation Movement there at the Algerian-Moroccan border, creating uh, serious problems for the Moroccan state. Exactly. At a time when French influence was still pervasive within the Moroccan military, there was internal infighting between the Moroccan nationalists and the remnants of French power within the Moroccan state, especially in the Moroccan military and intelligence services, which had been trained and controlled by the French. So the late 50s led to first the breakup of a progressive government, then the departure of my father from the Constitutional Assembly. And we see a dramatic split within the Moroccan government between the left wing of the national movement on the one hand and the monarchy on the other. Of course, right at that crucial time comes the death of the old king, Mohammed V. Which was an absolute catastrophe. Absolutely. He died during this supposedly simple, benign surgery, and during a very tense international context, the Union of African Nations was just started, and the first Congress took place in Casablanca. The Union of African Nations was then directed and led by African progressives such as Nkrumah, Sekou Toure, and others who were pushing in the general liberation movement in Africa. But at the same time, on a parallel track, the Moroccan army already had a very negative influence in Africa, in the Congo, for example, in the framework of the UN intervention there, in the Lumumba assassination. The role of the Moroccan army, that terrible tragedy which saw the snuffing out of one of the brightest and most promising progressive leaders in all of Africa, and his replacement by the infamous pro-Western Mobutu Seseku, that role, as I was saying, still remains rather murky today. All these events, of course, created a heated debate within the Moroccan political establishment. Conflicts within the monarchy and within Moroccan society at large raged. And it is at this time that the heir to the throne, the new King Hassan II, takes power, and not only takes power, but takes all powers, including executive and legislative powers to himself. And at that point, we see a drastic and total sidelining of the progressive wing of the national movement. On a parallel track, there's also a split in the Estaglal or Independence Party, from which the new UFP, or Union of Progressive Forces, is born as a progressive offshoot. Created by the great figures of the national progressive movement, Mehdi Ben Barka, Mohammed Yusufi, and others. It is both the progressive wing of the party, ideologically speaking, but at the same time it corresponds with the nationalist wing of the independence Estaglal party, which had resisted French occupation until independence. This is Khalil speaking with Mahdi Bambarka's son Bashir who spent the past 43 years dogging the French, Moroccan, and U.S. governments to release documents pertaining to the kidnapping and disappearance of his father, Mehdi. We'll talk more after this musical break. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA 94.1 FM.
This is Khalil. I'm back speaking with Bashir Bambarka about the life story of his father, Mahdi Bambarka. So as soon as Hassan II takes over, things start changing drastically. Les choses commencent commencent à changer. La répression se fait plus ouverte. Mon père est obligé de de s'exiler. Yes, things worsen rapidly. And by 1961, the repression has become much more overt, and my father is forced into exile again because a fabricated conspiracy, according to which Bambarka supposedly was plotting to kill the future king of Morocco, had conveniently appeared. The left press is now outlawed and arrested. UFP leaders of the new party, Union of Progressive Forces, started to be arrested. And after the death of the old king, that whole trend that dramatically accelerates. My father is now directly threatened and targeted by the police and intelligence forces, and he leaves Morocco. He comes back in 1962 for his party's convention, the UNFP, is now officially opposed to the new undemocratic constitution that was imposed on the people of Morocco by the new monarch. This so-called constitution, as a fig leaf, was to be put up to form a referendum, and Ben Barka was then leading a campaign against the referendum. He had left in uh, 1959 or 60, and he came back in 62. Yes, during his campaign, he became the target of a direct attempt on his life, disguised as a car accident. He was constantly being tailed by police vehicles, and one day, as he was on a trip from Rabat to Casablanca, one of the police vehicles that followed him maneuvered to force Ben Barka's car into a ditch by the roadside. And his life was only saved because some peasants who had witnessed the crash came to protect him from the police officers who came to the accident scene to finish him off. Ben Barka was extremely popular, wasn't he? Yes, and this was due to the extensive footwork he had done in the 40s. Remember, both within the Estaglal Independence Party and within the Constitutional Assembly, designing and leading a number of people-based projects to build what he liked to call the New Morocco, the New Society of Post-Independent Morocco. Very symbolically also, he had initiated this uh, incredible new road project in Morocco. Oui, alors là, c'est... Donc, donc, Yes, this project, which was very dear to his heart, was to unite the different and separate parts of Morocco, one end of Morocco which had been under the French protectorate and another under the Spanish protectorate, because, as you know, parts of Morocco were under Spanish control, and to this day they still are. It is in order to bring back together the separate parts of Morocco, in order to reconstruct Moroccan unity, that this project was conceived. But here again, he didn't go about it in a traditional fashion. On the contrary, Ben Barka brought more than 20,000 volunteers who rallied from all parts of Morocco to build this road, and that happened in the summer of 1957. So the volunteer workers worked in construction areas in the morning, and in the evening the volunteers studied civic education and history, as Ben Barka said, to build the citizen of the future. It is these thousands of volunteers who, when they returned to their villages, were bringing back and spreading with them the hope of a Morocco of the future, which unfortunately was short-circuited by the enemies of progress and never really crystallized as Ben Barka and others had dreamed. 
qui malheureusement n'a pas pu se construire tel que tel que ça était dans les espoirs des uns et des autres. So here he was, uh, this man of the people who had faith in a popular democratic future. Uh, this must have been a thorn in the side of the monarchy, which was so jealous of its uh, own privileges. Uh, tell us what was his relationship with the monarchy. I don't think he ever was really an anti-monarchist. To him, what was important was installing a democratic structure that would allow the people to express itself. And the goal was to install a constitutional monarchy, as one sees in some European countries, and the old king really seemed to share that modern vision. Even the new king, Hassan II, was forced to pay lip service to that notion. So strong was the consensus for it at the popular level. But the regime was personal, monarchic, autocratic. But initially the idea was to have this structure where the king reigned but an authentic popular participation and decision-making would be possible based on participatory grassroots democracy. From 1962 on, he again tirelessly crisscrossed Morocco, giving lectures in which he stressed the centrality of grassroots popular democracy emanating from local communities. His great passion was education. Many historians feel that his dream was to be Minister of National Education. And whenever he had an opportunity to do it, he would set up literacy workshops and deep discussions and debates on the concept of community-based institutions. He also invited knowledgeable social workers from Europe and other places who possessed appropriate expertise to help install mechanisms for a real popular participation in the exercise of power at the local level. Of course, all this flew in the face of the archaic monarchic vision of personal power of the king. This idea of democracy went hand in hand with a real sharing of the resources, with agrarian reform, which was going to destroy feudal structures which Morocco had retained after even the end of the French protectorate. All this was not looked upon too kindly by either the Moroccan monarchy or neo-colonial French interests. What always struck me about Mahdi Bambarka was his ability, his uncanny ability to reunite. You know, the colonialists always are so good at dividing in order to rule. You know, they're famous for that. They're very good at that. And here was Mahdi Bambarka who had this unusual ability to actually reunite people. He had this genius for, for reuniting people. Tell us a little bit about that. And this reuniting work went beyond just the Moroccan context. The idea of a united Maghreb, northwestern Africa, was also very deeply anchored in the hearts and minds of the peoples of all three countries. Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, which comprised the Maghreb. There was the first attempt at the Tangier Congress, where the leadership of all three countries, Ben Barka and his comrades from Morocco, the FLN for Algeria, and the Destour Party for Tunisia, which put in place foundations for unification of the three countries soon after independence of all three. He was very active and deeply involved in that effort, as you know. As president of the Constitutional Assembly, he traveled extensively beyond North Africa, throughout the Arab world, and as far as China, to steep himself into all the different experiments that were taking place then in countries such as Yugoslavia, Egypt, India, and China. And all those newly independent countries where there was a real ambition to build a truly independent economy. 
This allowed him to evolve a synthesis of all the best ideas he had observed in those varied countries. That also gave him the opportunity to create lasting bonds of trust, solidarity, and friendship with other leaders of the Third World in Africa and the Arab world. Luminaries such as Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt and Sekou Toure of Guinea. He was constantly in touch with the nationalist and independence movements in Africa and Asia and was able to forge bonds of not only friendship, but of cooperation and solidarity. So during his first exile between 1961 and 62, he took on responsibilities within the organization of the Peoples of African and Asian Countries, better known as OSPA, which convened independent Asian and African countries and countries still working for their independence. The seat of this organization was in Cairo, and he naturally took a leading role within this organization and was in charge of the Special Fond Committee which organized projects of active material support and solidarity for movements of national liberation, connecting and redistributing aid coming from both the socialist countries of Europe and independent third world countries to directly to the liberation movements. As leader of this committee, he earned the trust of other third world leaders who clearly recognized his organizational genius and his knowledge of the different countries and the power relations that existed. They also recognized and relied upon his uncommon capacities to mediate and solve conflicts between different parties. He really had this rare talent. He was friends with Algerian President Bembela, Egypt's Nasser, Mali's Modibo Keita, Ghana's Nkrumah, all of whom never hesitated to ask for his opinion about such and such conflict, such and such problem or situation in their geographical areas because they knew that he could provide expert and helpful advice to them. On October 29, 1965, Moroccan revolutionary leader Mehdi Ben Barka was abducted in Paris and was never to be seen again. His son Bashir Ben Barka spoke with Khalil about his father from Paris. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not
often perceived as a leader in women's equality in the Arab world and perhaps the entire Middle East and North Africa region. Last September, a new law lifted a decades-long ban on Muslim women marrying non-Muslims. The law came into effect after the Tunisian president, Sipsi, had previously presented other gender equality proposals. On Tunisia's Women's Day on August 13th, Sipsi stated that, quote, state is obliged to achieve full equality between men and women to ensure equal opportunities for all, end of quote. Among Sipsi's other proposals is one that would equalize both genders regarding the nation's inheritance law. On the other hand, those critical of Sipsi say that he is using these seemingly progressive reforms to cover up his reactionary political agenda. The same week that the ban on Muslim women marrying non-Muslims was lifted, Tunisia also adopted the so-called, quote, administrative reconciliation law. According to Human Rights Watch, this law will grant complete immunity to civil servants who were implicated in corruption under former dictator Ben Ali. Mumina's Mira Nabulsi spoke with Tunisian journalist and researcher Asma Ghribi about these laws and the recent developments in Tunisia. On September 14th, Tunisian President Beji Kaid Sipsi introduced a law that would allow Tunisian Muslim women to marry outside of their religion. And earlier this year, in July, Tunisia also passed uh, tougher laws on domestic and sexual violence. Before we get into the context and the critical views of these laws, Esma, help us understand what do these two laws do and how were they received by the Tunisian street and women's rights advocates? To start with lifting the ban, it has been a demand of the Tunisian faction of Tunisian women and of Tunisian feminists for a while now to lift this ban. Technically, it's not a law. It's just like a decree. It was proposed by the first post-independence president, 
Habibuji by 1973. So Tunisian women, they cannot marry non-Muslim men, and those non-Muslim men will have to go through a conversion process that is regulated by the Tunisian state, and they have to go and meet the mufti of the Tunisian Republic to be able to marry a Tunisian Muslim woman. And recently, on September 14th, as you mentioned, that ban was lifted. So the president of the Republic, Bujakat Sipsi, on August 13th, which is also the national day for the celebrating women in Tunisia, the Tunisian Women's Day or something like that. And during the speech he delivered on that day, he called on Tunisia civil society and on Tunisians in general, and he said it's time to reform these laws and to get rid of this ban and also to reform the inheritance laws, which follow Sharia law and give women half of what men get. It was pretty controversial. The liberal faction was very happy with the move and praised the president for calling to reform and do these things. But, of course, the traditionalists or the more conservative faction of the Tunisian society said, no, we should not change these. The inheritance law, it makes sense because Tunisia is still one as a patriarchal society. And for lifting the ban, they also said, like, well, that should not be the case. Any Tunisian woman should, as long as she's Muslim, she should be marrying a Muslim man. But then it happened, and it's like the least controversial, I think, is the ban. But it remains to be seen whether really the more important law, which is, I think, the inheritance law, we will see if that actually changes anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I honestly doubt that. So I feel like the president chose his battle and started with an easier option, which is like lifting the ban, because it's not even a law that needs to be reformed, it's just a decree that needs to be lifted. So it's much easier. It doesn't have to go through a you know legislative process. It doesn't have to go through the cabinet minister meeting or a vote in the parliament. It's just a decree that could be lifted. Whereas the inheritance law is more complicated, and that would require more of a comprehensive legislative examination of the legal framework. It has also been like a demand uh, of Tunisian feminists, because, yeah, Tunisia is usually, like, praised as the most liberal in the Muslim world, but at the same time, the way Tunisian women live and lead their daily lives is different from the legal structure, and domestic violence is still rampant, and I think, according to numbers by Tunisian NGOs, it's like three-quarters of something. More than 50% of Tunisian women get or are victims to domestic violence, and I think three-quarters of women, they said they were victims of just violence and harassment in general, at least once in their lives. And I honestly think those numbers are conservative because I think it's much more, because it's not reported, and most domestic violence goes unreported. All these laws are great. It's always good to improve the legal framework, but honestly, it remains to be seen how those laws will be enforced. Mm-hmm. So now we have a new law against domestic violence and against violence against women in general, but we will see if the government gives enough resources. For example, this law says that the security forces and judges, both of those groups should be trained to deal with cases involving violence against women. I have not heard anything about more resources being allocated to this. I have not heard of anything like happening in real life. All these laws should be translated into practice and into reforms to the 
penal code and things like that. And to go back to the inheritance law, there seems to be the larger debate on this issue. It may touch on the issue of the secularity of the state. Perhaps you could unpack this for our listeners. Tunisia prides itself for being a secular state, or I guess what you guys Mm -hmm. call the civil state. And yet at the same time, Islamic law or the Sharia is still a source of legislation. Is that a reason for the Uh, tension? And how do you see a subsidy dealing with that? So a lot of these laws, they were historic and they were revolutionaries at the time when they were first passed. So we're talking the 1950s. So when the Code of Personal Status, which is the law, family law in Tunisia, organizing, regulating laws of divorce, laws of inheritance. So when these reformist laws were passed back in the 1950s, compared to the rest of the Arab world, they were revolutionary. But in 2017, those laws are no longer revolutionary. The mindset of Tunisians and just the situation, the socioeconomic structure has changed. So women participate more now in the workforce. Women participate more in household expenses. Those changes should be also accompanied by changes in the legal structure and then the legal framework of the country. But that is not happening. That's the example of the, and that's when the inheritance law, that's why I don't see it happening, honestly, soon. Because right after Bejaqat Sipsi gave that speech in August, that was the most controversial one, like, don't touch men's money. You know, the patriarchy doesn't want anyone to, it really touches and it influences and it impacts the patriarchal structure of the society. I actually find that interesting because with the marriage issue, it seems to me like it has to do a lot more with the fabric of the society of women being able to marry non-Muslims as opposed to the inheritance. It's an economic issue. It's not an issue that changes family values. I see exactly the point you're trying to make. Like maybe 1%, I don't know the number, but it's like the lifting of the ban affects the lives of like 1% of Tunisian women. However, reforming the inheritance law, that is going to change the life of every single Tunisian woman. That's far more important than lifting the ban. I mean, don't get me wrong, lifting the ban is very important. But at the same time, like, I feel like the government went for the easiest choice, and you're familiar with the timing and how they timed it literally one day after passing a law that was deemed by... Most international NGOs were working and following the political developments in Tunisia mm-hmm. as a law giving impunity to former regime corrupt officials. Almost like a PR strategy to cover what they did. They were like, okay, let's lift this ban on Tunisian women marrying foreign men or non-Muslim men. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that. You wrote an article in the Washington Post recently that you titled Don't Fall for the Tunisian President's Fake Feminism. So you're clearly critical of the recent laws, uh, like many other Tunisians. Tell us really more why and tell us more about the political moment. So yeah, as I mentioned, the Tunisian parliament passed a law that is called the Law on Administrative Reconciliation. Human Rights Watch, the International Center for Transitional Justice, among other groups, they all said that this law, one, is very hurtful to the Tunisian transition. It's not serving the goals of the revolution. So one of the first things is, like, one, we need to prosecute the corrupt officials who work under the Ben Ali regime. Instead of doing that, 
this new law, it's just pure impunity law. So one day after they passed that law, they also lifted the ban. And most of the coverage suddenly shifted from saying like, oh, look at Tunisia, the country that we thought was a success story, the country that we thought is going to protect the revolution and celebrate its principles and everything instead of doing that. They changed the topic from focusing on Tunisia, derailing its transitional process. Had they waited for like a week or two weeks, then maybe it was just coincidence that the very fact that the ban was lifted literally one day after passing the administrative reconciliation law, you can't ignore the timing. It's too soon. And in your article, you also say that in Tunisia, as well as in other Arab countries, dictators launch these type of reforms to convince Western policymakers that they share their goals in the region. Talk to us more about that, because specifically this ban thing has really garnered some international interest and a lot of Western coverage. I don't believe I've seen as much coverage, for example, for the domestic violence and sexual violence law, which actually does protect women in many various ways. His communication strategy worked because he really managed to get most Western media to like forget about covering the administrative reconciliation law and focus instead on the lifting of the ban. And yeah, as I mentioned in the article, like even under the Ben Ali regime, and you know, this is a regime that had no respect or whatsoever for human rights or for anything else. But at the same time, the regime did not hesitate from using the cause of women's empowerment and the women's rights to serve its purposes and to brand itself in the eyes of the West as, look at me, I'm a liberal regime, I'm allowing women to do all these things, I'm giving women their rights. But at the same time, people forget that the Ben Ali regime was notorious for torturing female political prisoners. How can you say you're, like, promoting women's rights and women were not even free to dress the way they wanted in Tunisia under the Ben Ali regime? He was selling himself to the West as a pro-women president as his security forces were literally ripping women's headscarves off their heads in the streets of Tunis and the streets of the whole country. So women's rights is not just an issue you could mention in your political campaign. In doing this, Bejaqat Sipsi is just following the example of Ben Ali, who did the same. As Tunisians, we should be able to have democracy, and also females and women should be able to have and enjoy their equal rights as citizens, and enjoy their rights to marry whoever they want, and enjoy their rights to equal share of their inheritance. But at the same time, Tunisia should still try and at least aspire to be a just society, a society that respects the law and not a country that passes such a despicable law like the administrative reconciliation law. It's as if we never had a revolution. So the constitution that was passed in 2014, it stipulates the creation of a transitional justice commission that is taking care of all of this. And there is a whole system put in place to deal with transitional justice. But instead, Bejiqat Sipsi did not want any transitional justice. And instead, he just wanted to save his fellow former regime officials. Just a blank impunity. You could do whatever you want. Like, what message are we sending to the world? Bejiqat Sipsi and his advisors claim that they passed this 
reconciliation law to send a positive message to potential investors in Tunisia. But seriously, like, what message are we sending to international investors? We're telling them, hey, by the way, you could be corrupt and still get away with it. So if you come to Tunisia and some Tunisian corrupt person, like, victimizes you, don't worry about it because we don't have any law and they're going to get away with it. I can't see, honestly, like, all the arguments that were put forward by Bejik Aksipsi and his advisors to try to defend the economic reconciliation law, or they renamed it, rebranded it, and now it's the administrative reconciliation law. None of their arguments, honestly, is convincing. To talk a little bit about the street, because we know there was a lot of protests from a lot of specifically young people also who came out into the streets to protest this reconciliation law that essentially gives amnesty to many of the people who were part of the previous regime administration. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the street right now. It seems like Sipsi is trying to absorb the anger, maybe through this rhetoric of gender equality, or maybe him being a reformist, bringing international investments. There was earlier, I believe this year, also protests in regards to jobs. So clearly there's some disappointment in the street of what this government was able to achieve. We see also the president trying to sell this rhetoric of gender equality to the West, to investors perhaps. But what is he really able to achieve on the ground? Is he able to convince the street and young people that he is achieving what he's claiming? Bizaqat Sipsi and his government, they won the elections of December 2014. So they've been in power for almost three years. What are the achievements of Vijayakad Sipsi and his advisors? I'll tell you what his achievements are. One is passing this administrative reconciliation law. His other achievement, the new law that is being discussed in Tunisia right now, is a law to protect the security forces. So again, it's another law that is trying to reestablish the police state that was under Ben Ali. At least under Ben Ali, there was no particular law to protect the security forces. But now we're even doing this. So we're doing this in a country that is already suffering from abuses by the security forces. They are, and here again, we talk about the same security forces of the Ben Ali regime, notorious for torture, this absent respect, or any notion of human rights or anything of that. So add to that, he wants to pass a law to protect the security forces. So now we can't even criticize them. And corruption is rampant in the security apparatus. There are no laws that he tried to pass in the spirit of the revolution, like reformist laws, improve the human rights situation in the country. Instead of passing a law to protect the security forces, how about passing a law to deal with the problem of security forces abusing their powers. But instead, none of that has been done. And all of the laws that were pushed by this current regime are just laws to just bring Tunisia back to what it was through 2011. We see that this regime is not doing anything to deal with the problems of unemployment or the problems of local government. There's so many problems in the country. And instead of seeing in a country where Unemployment is so high. Why is your first priority is to protect the former officials of the Benami regime? How about protecting the current citizens? How about trying to make the situation better for those people? So, of course, all of these decisions and all of these laws are going to trigger the anger of people.
And if we're to turn more to the Tunisian women's movement, Tunisia is still living the aftermath of the revolution and the political and perhaps even the social transformations of the Tunisian revolution. And we know that Tunisia was the first to experience the massive waves of protests that stormed different Arab countries in what became known as the Arab Spring. But if we're to talk about the feminist movement, the women's movement in Tunisia, seven years after the revolution, where is that women's movement at? The recent laws and proposals for gender equality appear to be perhaps a gain or a win for the Tunisian women, but are they also a win for the Tunisian feminist movement? Of and course. The They've been working relentlessly on improving the legal framework and just improving life for Tunisian women in general. And I think they really did a good job trying to seize the opportunity of the fact that Tunisia has more freedom and there is more freedom of expression and freedom to ask for more and to ask for improvement. And they're not naive. They are aware that their cause is being used by the regime, but they say we prefer to focus on the bright side. We've been advocating, for example, for lifting the ban on Tunisian women to marry non-Muslim men, and we're aware that this has been used by the regime to polish its image and everything, but they say at the same time, they try to focus on the achievement and they're like working more. When nobody else, honestly, like the topic, for example, of reforming the inheritance laws is pretty controversial in Tunisia. But when that was not even on the table, Tunisian feminists were trying to push for it, to like start a conversation about it. They did a good job trying to just use the opportunity and just use whatever space there is for them to express their opinions and to push for reform. And I think they've been doing a very good job with that. And six years after the revolution, do you think women were able to achieve some of their aspirations overall? I think it's a little unfair to just kind of tie the revolution to women's rights. Empowering women was not among the demands of the revolution. But at the same time, the fact that the revolution brought with it freedom of expression and freedom of association, and now there is more political freedom. There are so many new NGOs working on diverse range of causes. So that's where the revolution actually served these causes, because under Ben Ali, even like the Tunisian feminist movement, they were oppressed by the regime and, and not allowed to talk or to do the activities that they wanted to do. So, yeah, in that way, the freedom that came with the revolution helped the cause of women. But at the same time, the freedom that came with the revolution gave a voice to also conservative movements that are not very pleased with the liberal tendency in Tunisia. But I don't necessarily see that as a negative thing. It's just part of democracy and it's part of just coexistence and make every group and every movement is going to try to push for its agenda. So that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, I think the revolution has played a positive role in improving women's lives in general in Tunisia. Asma Ghribi is a Tunisian journalist and researcher whose work has appeared in many publications, including Foreign Policy, Washington Post, and Harper's. She spoke with Vomina's Mirana Bulsi. For more information, please visit us at vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.